0: Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at
1: opioidresponse.info.
2: It's Friday, February 26th, and I'm Bill Nygut. We're back with you for another edition of Political Rewind. Um, Uh, Those of you who heard the show yesterday heard me say that I've been losing my voice, I've been hoarse. And um, first of all, I appreciate the fact that um, I've gotten notes from some of you about what to do about it. Brenda Lester down in Macon sent me an email that said, lemons, lemons. And I wrote back asking her if if it would be just as effective if I put the lemon in gin and tonic, but she didn't respond. So unfortunately, I wasn't quite sure how to move forward with that. Then I also got a Facebook post. It was a little bit unfriendly, but I thought it was a point worth making. Uh, the, the poster said, Bill Nygut is misleading people. Because I said yesterday that uh, I now have had both my COVID-19 shots. And so in a time when people are worried about illness, I didn't want anyone to think that um, my voice was the result of my having covid Uh, the person who put up the post did remind me that the vaccine is 95% effective, not 100% effective, and that I should get tested. And you know what? That wasn't a bad idea. So I did it. I went and got a test yesterday, and it was negative. So thank you for all the responses you've given. I'll try to get through the show with you today. But fortunately, we have some great talkers, really smart people to... uh, Talk with us about the big stories in the news. It's Friday, which means uh, Patricia Murphy, the political reporter and columnist uh, for, for the AJC. Uh, Patricia is in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays with her column and also oversees the Daily Jolt, which appears on AJC.com. And Patricia, as you said before we went on the air, You're trying to get a fresh jolt up pretty early in the morning these days.
1: Yes. um, The jolt is what we find to be some of our readers' very, very favorite product. And so it is a compilation of our original reporting, like little scoops and scooplets. And then um, we... I cruise through all of the local papers all around the state and some and the national papers as well to see if Georgia or Georgians have made any big headlines overnight. And um, we put that all in the jolt, and then my goal is to get it to everybody um, before 830 in the morning now and sometimes a little earlier. I'm an early riser already, so it's something that I um, really like to do. And then I am fully sped up on the news by 7 a.m., so that's, that's what I'm up to. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we we like seeing the jolt early. Thank you for doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. By the way, we should also point out that your house must be a little bit nuts now early in the morning. You've got to get the jolt done and also get your two children set for school. I mean, it's a little bit more uh, hectic around your house, I would imagine.
1: Well, that's why I have to get the jolt done. (laughs) Because my (laughs) son wakes up at 5.55 every day. And so if the jolt's not done by 5.55, it's going to be done about 10.30. (laughs) 10.30. <laughs> That's the real reason why I have to get up and do it early. So yes, thank you. He, he's, I call him my assistant editor because he's up with me.
2: Good. Uh, we're also joined today by Professor Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia and the uh, f- founder of, the creator of, and the director of the applied politics program at UGA, where Audrey, you work with your students to find careers in politics and for you i wore my applied politics t-shirt underneath my shirt today
0: yes and it suits you so well bill you're one of our favorite speakers (laughs) And, and all of our speakers who have come to speak you're one of the most dynamic so it was great thank you for that
2: uh, th- thank you for saying that, Audrey. You're, you're working with your classes is a great deal of fun for people like me, Greg Bluestein, Jim Galloway, all the other great people you've had come out there, and I'm sure Patricia Murphy is going to be out there uh, as soon as you can get her to come out as well. Um, we're also joined today by Professor Bernard Fraga, who is a po- professor of political science at Emory University. Um, and Bernard, uh, I mentioned just before the show went on, this will be your second time on the show. We, we loved having you on the first time a couple of weeks ago. But because uh, you're new to our, our group, I thought it would be uh, worthwhile for our listeners to hear just a little bit about the kind of work you're doing at Emory.
3: Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. And it's a, really a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. Um, I do research on elections, especially the analysis of data on who turns out to vote and who stays home, or who I guess in today's political world, who doesn't mail in a ballot. My 2018 book, The Turnout Gap, looks at the causes and consequences of racial and ethnic disparities in who turns out to vote. Now, being here in Georgia where race, election laws, and who votes are so intertwined and so critical for not just Georgia politics, but national politics, I'm I'm just very happy that I can contribute to the discussion and that my research Uh, it's not just me sitting in my office, that it's actually relevant for the real world. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to speak to all the listeners out there.
2: where did you grow up?
3: So I grew up in Indiana, actually, in uh, northern Indiana, another state that, uh, although maybe a little more in the past, has had its own kind of uh, transition from being a kind of swing state to solidly one way politically and then the other way and switching back and forth. But um, also a state where, Election laws, um, like what we're going to be discussing today, have been something that, you know, has gotten a lot of attention. And, um, one of the first states where we had, for example, voter identification laws. So I grew up there. I went to college out on the West Coast and then, like, on the East Coast of college, I ended up here, um, just a, a few months ago, actually. So again, great opportunity to be here in Georgia and share my work with all of your listeners.
2: Well, we're really glad that you've joined our uh, rotating group of panelists for Political Rewind. All right, let's get started. Uh, Patricia, let's talk. There's a lot to talk about in terms of the election bills that continue to dominate much of the conversation down at the Capitol. But let's start instead with uh, a look at the latest on Governor Kemp and the rules that he is uh, uh, putting in place for vaccinations and some of his concerns about what's happening in schools in regard to COVID-19. Yesterday, um, he, he announced, go ahead. I was going
1: to save you the words, Bill. (laughs) Yesterday, uh, Governor Kemp announced that he is going to be expanding the eligibility pool for the COVID-19 vaccine um, from seniors over 65, which had been his focus in these early weeks of vaccinations, and he's expanding that to teachers, um, all the way from pre-K up to 12th grade of teachers, also the parents of um, children with complex medical conditions will be included in that uh, pool as well. And um, as a part of that, uh, he said that his uh, great hope is that for the teachers who still um, have not returned to the classroom uh, in the school districts that have still not returned to the classroom, um, he is very hopeful that not only will people take the vaccine, but that also schools will get back to school even before vaccines are complete, um, you could really hear his frustration that, a num- that um, some schools have still not met in person for almost a year. And um, it is something that he said, uh, we can't continue to look for excuses were his exact words. And so um, he has been under great pressure from teachers to expand the vaccinations to them. Um, They feel like they are required, for the schools that are in person, they're required to be there among a large population of students. Also, of course, required to be there with their fellow teachers. And in Georgia, um, many, many counties, um, I don't wanna say many counties, some counties do not have mask mandates in their schools. And so that is why many teachers are saying they need to be vaccinated as soon as possible to feel safe
2: in the classroom. Uh, Audrey, the governor, did express a lot of frustration about the schools that are not open yet for in-person uh, classes. Um, and there's some question as to whether he couldn't order them all uh, to open or, or tell the State Board of Education, the state school superintendent, get them all open. But, boy, you do that, and you're really facing a world of trouble with uh, those who believe in the school systems that local control is what should uh, prevail when it comes to education.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that also doesn't fit with sort of Kemp's brand in terms of leadership. You know, he has been very um, reticent to do any kinds of, uh, you know, direct command to, to utilize his powers in that way. In fact, you know, people have been critical uh, early on about that. But, you know, he is in an interesting political situation because, you know, With an election coming up and with a constituency that he has really courted, you know, educators, he's been under a lot of pressure. And and I I would say I I do believe that Kemp and his team have tried to do what they felt was best in terms of getting older, the most vulnerable members of uh, Georgia society um, inoculated and vaccinated when we have a limited supply of vaccines. I mean, that has been the biggest problem. If we had all of the vaccines that we needed earlier on, I don't think we would have been in this situation. So he's had to make some very tough decisions, and he's had a lot of pressure. You know, parents and teachers, um, they both have real strong concerns. You know, parents with the education of their students Teachers, you know, fearful of getting sick. And if you do get sick, you're not able to teach the students, regardless. So, all of these things have put a lot of pressure on him. And I think he has responded in a very rational way uh, to the situation.
2: Uh, Bernard, this is a governor who says he wants to be known as the COVID governor. In fact, in many ways, will stake his reelection on how well he handles the pandemic. Uh, so, I add that. Uh, to the conversation, and please weigh in as you will on all this.
3: Well, you know, obviously, I think that this is a, a big step in the in the right direction, expanding to teachers who had been demanding, especially in several large um, public school districts, demanding access to the vaccine. Of course, the CDC recommendations indicated that teachers were this, you know, frontline essential worker group. Uh, Georgia is one of the few states that didn't include teachers when, you know, lowering the age threshold down and including other essential workers. So, you know, obviously this is a very positive development, but I think what it speaks to, as Audrey mentioned, you know, it speaks to the fact that we're still in a period of very limited supply. Many people want the vaccine and cannot get it. However, there are also substantial numbers of people who could get the vaccine who have refused to do so. And polling indicated, and some of this drove the governor's decision, polling indicated that Perhaps even a majority of public school teachers did not want to get the vaccine, even if it was going to be available to them. So I think there's going to be big questions going forward about whether employers, school districts perhaps can mandate the vaccine, mandate the vaccine perhaps for teachers teaching in person. And the decisions parents are going to make, are they willing to send their students back to school if some teachers are not vaccinated, given that teachers are the primary kind of vector for infection of students?
1: Yeah, I think also, um, uh, y'all had, Audrey in particular had mentioned this in terms of the um, political implications. I I do not believe these are political calculations, but there will be political implications for the governor. The teachers are such an enormously powerful group in the state and multiple states and multiple governors in this state have uh, gone down fighting against the teachers. The teachers have won In the end. Um, uh, But we hear so much about local control and giving counties local control. When you go down to the General Assembly, uh, elections are also administered by counties. But this uh, legislature has no problem mandating to these counties Mm. right now what they should do um, with their voting to the point that um, the House is taking up a bill that the state can take over and underperform County Elections Board. Um, The legislature is also considering a bill to require police departments to maintain their police funding. Um, And if they cut it by more than 5% at the county level, they will be penalized by the state. So there are certainly areas where the state is willing to get involved in county decisions. Um, And while all of this is happening, I just cannot stop thinking about kids at home for one year. It is to me um, a failure of um, just American society. I, I can't. I still can't wrap my head around it um, that we have so many things open and we have children just languishing in their homes. And there's a point at which in children's um, development that it is too late to go back. You don't have a year to learn how to read if you miss your window of opportunity at a certain point in the brain's development. So um, these are these are these are situations that we're not going to be able to unwind for some children and so um, that's an area where I'm keeping really a close eye and I and I and I'm sure I'll be writing about it soon
2: yes oh. um, Audrey go ahead well I was
0: I was going to follow up because, um, you know, we've had a reference to the tepid response from teachers who were interested in getting the vaccine. And I was going to suggest that I think that will change. One of the things that we're seeing Mm -hmm. is that when people are actually getting the vaccine, um, and I've seen a number of my older neighbors get it and people, um, you know, who are working on the front lines, when people start talking about I had no ill effects, you know, this is working, I feel so much better. You know, that's usually what changes people's attitudes when they receive more information that, you know, this is
3: safe and it's working. Yeah, well, I, I want to follow up on that as well, because I, I agree 100% that as we see the vaccine getting rolled out, as individuals become, have their neighbors or their friends or coworkers get vaccinated, I think it will encourage more vaccinations to happen. But, the fact that we see such severe racial and ethnic disparities in terms of who has access to the vaccine, who's getting the vaccine, very high rates of resistance in communities of color, especially in the African-American community, understandable given the history right, of unequal medical treatment for African-Americans in this country in particular, I think it's going to be incumbent upon the state government and local governments, school systems, school districts to do everything they can to encourage teachers and other vulnerable members of our society to get vaccinated, frankly, so we can get back to work, so parents can get back to work, so we can get children back in school learning at the highest level that they can.
1: Yeah, I think it's also really important that even if 100% of teachers wanted to get vaccinated tomorrow, the logistical challenges of this are really, really complex. And there are 180 separate school systems in the state and 180 separate plans. And so some schools are gonna send their teachers to a mass vaccination site. Some schools are bringing in uh, private healthcare providers some systems are sending their teachers to pharmacies where they'll have a partnership. Um, and you're talking about half a million people. So um, even as um, this announcement has been made, uh, the, the warning or the, the level setting of expectations has been um, this won't happen overnight because these school systems have to each come up with a plan to both schedule and then administer two doses of the vaccine.
2: Uh, I want to take up two other quick issues on this before we move on. Patricia, you said something. You framed the governor's decision on this in just such a perfect way, and I'll tell you why I was impressed by it. Last week on this show, I made the statement that, of course, public health was the driving force behind decisions that are being made about vaccinations by the governor, by Kathleen Toomey, his director of public health, but that politics plays a role. And I pointed out that Roy Barnes, one of the reasons he lost re-election in 2002 is that teachers turned against him en in, in, in mass. Now, there were other groups that turned against him as well, but teachers certainly made an impact. And I raised the question on the show of whether Kemp faced that kind of blowback if he didn't listen to the concerns of teachers and i was really slapped across i was slapped down hard by one of our republican panelists who accused <laughs> me of turning this into a a political matter so what was the framing you used not i, th- I don't think there
1: it? i don't think there are political considerations at work but i do know there are political implications you mm. may not be doing this to satisfy a political constituency but you will see those political constituencies at the polls. And, and really, those are decisions I, leaders have to make, actually.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it. Uh, Bernard, one of your concerns is, and by the way, we've gotten tweets from others who share it, uh, is that um, the vaccinations now will stop with uh, 12th grade. Uh, college teaching, uh, people on college campuses teaching are not included in this group
3: yeah, that's correct. you know and that was a bit of a surprise to some. Uh, I know that universities have already created colleges and universities in the state, have already created plans and we're already surveying faculty and staff to determine, you know who would be interested in getting the vaccine. Uh, you know, most well, many colleges and universities are are uh, primarily in person or have a substantial share of courses being taught this spring. In person, so it was a bit of a surprise, but uh, I think that again, it speaks to the fact that there just isn't enough vaccine supply to go around. And the hope is that sometime in the spring, uh, faculty and staff at universities and colleges across the state will be included uh, in this essential worker category. And uh, we no longer have the phases, the 1A or 1B, 1A plus. It's not there anymore, but that they will eventually
2: be included. Audrey, I'll give you the last word on this section of the show.
0: Well, um, that is absolutely right. But I would also say that universities have, you know, different infrastructure and resources, too. So, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, teachers in K through 12, they're in a room. They don't have a separate office. They're in the in the classroom with students, hours on end, with a lot of students packed into relatively small spaces if they are teaching face-to-face. I'm teaching face-to-face, and I have 40 students in a room that seats 300 and we're all masked and we have no problem having, because at the university level, we have a mask mandate, you know, USG fought for that. And so we have one, so we're a bit safer. And I think we can, we can wait just a little bit more.
2: All right. uh, Let's do this. Uh, I've got a lot to talk about in terms of the legislature, particularly the ongoing um, controversy over election bills. So let's get our first break of the show out of the way now and come back with uh, that and more. If you're just joining us, our panelists today are the AJC's Patricia Murphy, uh, University of Georgia political science professor Audrey Haynes, and Emory University political science professor Bernard Fraga. And yes, if you're just joining the show, I do have a bad uh, hoarse voice. I'm sorry for that. I did make myself a concoction of, uh, I've got some hot water, lemon, honey, fresh ginger. And it tastes like there might be a little bit of Irish whiskey in there as well, but I can't imagine how that would have gotten there. It it must be my imagination. Patricia Murphy, (laughs) enough of that. Uh, Patricia, uh, these election bills keep coming and coming and coming. I think Mark Nisi counted them up, your colleague, and— found there's more than 70 of them down there. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be, and while most of them are moving forward, are we seeing some backing away from from several of the ones that many people consider the most draconian? Yes or no? Well, you know, I would
1: say, say that none of this is going to be over until it's over really even after crossover day i think we could even still see a few things pop in here and there um and so um i'm not going to conclu- conclude really that anything's over and done until it's over and done um one thing that we have seen fall away that was the most controversial um was a proposal to eliminate uh sunday voting saturday and sunday voting um which uh is of course part of uh souls to the polls, which is when uh, particularly black churches uh, will organize for their parishioners uh, to go uh, vote. And um, uh, Chairman Barry Fleming of the House committee that's overseeing all of this said he got so much, um, really so much blowback from people saying, what, what in the world are you thinking? Um, they did decide to go ahead and take that out of his particular omnibus bill. Um, now, as you said, there are multiple other pieces of legislation, and a lot of the legislation conflicts with each other. So there is a package from the Lieutenant Governor, Jeff Duncan, um, uh, that has already passed the Senate that uh, requires ID for absentee voting, um, uh, but not a photo ID uh, with every application. There's a separate measure coming out from Senate majority um, Mike Dugan that would eliminate no excuse absentee voting, which conflicts with the lieutenant governor's bill. So there are just so many moving parts, so many separate power factions, um, or power centers with factions behind them. Um, it's really tough to follow what's going on. And um, thank God for Mark Nisi is all I can really say. Uh, but, the, you know, the real headline is, is that there are um, going to be significant changes to the way Georgians vote, and um, uh, most of them will be, I would say, uh, uh, will have some restrictions on what people were able to do and when they were able to do it. Um, I will add one quick caveat. Uh, all people at the legislature agree there are some changes that do need to be made to sort of update and modernize elections, especially if absentee voting is sort of the wave of the future, since we've had so many millions of people um, use the opportunity to absentee vote. And so there are also other bills to sort of accommodate for this huge influx of absentee voting in the future if it's allowed to stay as it is.
2: So is an example of that um that it will now be required for counties to begin counting absentee votes eight days ahead of the election, even though they can't report out what their kind. Is that one of the examples of just that?
1: Yes, I would say that's an example to require counties to begin processing those absentee ballots. Before it was optional, now it's required, um, or it will be if it it passes both chambers. Um, There are also, um, there's a recommendation to uh, have a deadline of when voters need to request that absentee ballot by. It had been three days, which really is quite a short turnaround for somebody to request an absentee ballot and get it in time to actually cast a vote and then have it counted at the county level. So um, there is quite a bit of attention of how to um, really clean up absentee voting and modernize it. Uh, There are also other discussions of how to reduce it and reduce access to it.
0: Um, You know, and to follow up, that was, you know, an excellent review of a lot of the things that are going on right now. But you know, as someone who's watching this, I'm sure Bernard has some thoughts. One of the things I would suggest is that there is a lot um, in these bills that have potential, you know, problematic uh, implications as well. One, I think some of the Republicans aren't really thinking through some of these pieces of legislation because it could actually hurt them in elections. They're so eager to demonstrate what is going on nationally from a lot of states and a lot of GOP legislatures that, you know, we're going to, you know, make changes in response to what was a very false narrative about the level of fraud that takes place. So you've got this response that is meant to be, um, you know, reactive to it and reactive to a problem that didn't exist. Some of the things in the bill, uh, in the variety of bills, are actually – Innovative, as um, as uh, Patricia mentioned. For example, the rank and file. I mean, um, what am I? The rank choice voting for military and overseas voters. That's that's smart. That's clever. Dealing with some of the issues with counting. That's smart and that's clever. But there are some things that just don't take into account that something like COVID could happen again. And if you ban something entirely and you write it out of law. You don't have the ability to, um, you know, it in case something else happens. And then some things like not providing water or food in lines, you know, that can really hamper elderly people who are standing in line. And it's actually cool. I mean, it's, it's sort of a ridiculous thing to add when you should want people to be turning out to vote, especially when you're encouraging people to turn out in person to vote. But then you're saying you can't provide water. Um, In case someone is, you know, you know, boiling hot in July in this in the state. So I I will stop there. But I would caution that there are some things to be concerned about. And people should really be looking at this
3: legislation
0: and talking to their state legislators about it.
3: You know, I think Audrey hits the nail on the head there. We're uh, now in the wake of not just one, but two historic elections in Georgia with record voter turnout. About 5 million Georgians turned out to vote in November, and 4.4 million Georgians turned out in the runoff elections in January. But despite that, in November, about a third of eligible Georgians, of adult citizens of voting age, right, in Georgia did not turn out to vote. There's still millions of Georgians who are not voting, many of whom want to vote, but find it difficult, can't find a time to vote outside of their work schedule. During COVID, even with absentee ballot expansion, still can't vote. So I'm really surprised and disappointed that this has taken on such a partisan tone. As Audrey mentioned, we should be celebrating a democracy where all voices are heard. We talk a lot about cancel culture and wanting all voices to be heard. Why not in elections as well? So I'm disappointed to see many of the bills are restricting the ability to vote early, restricting local government's ability to lessen line length by making more and more hours available for people to vote. Why are we talking about cutting early voting instead of expanding early voting if we're concerned about absentee ballot fraud, which again, does not exist. 150,000 ballots were inspected in Cobb County in December by the state government. Zero evidence of intentional voter fraud. Zero. Not a little bit, not a tiny bit. Zero. So again, I just question the fact that You know, we're doing anything making it more difficult to vote when there's still millions of people around the country and even in the state who could vote who don't. And Georgia is not unique in this respect. Uh, Brennan Center, the nonpartisan Brennan Center for Justice, just did an analysis and found there are over 250 bills in 42 states restricting, again, restricting voting in the wake of the November election. And it's just unfortunate that Americans have been tricked into thinking that their elections are not secure when, in fact, you know, government agencies indicated during the Trump administration, these were the most secure elections we've ever had in 2020. Republicans did well, especially down ballot. Uh, again, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. And it's disappointing that we're talking about making it more difficult to
2: vote. Yeah, Bernard, uh, uh, we've been tracking that uh, Brennan Center study and, and talking about it on the on the air. And you're right. We, the number of states keep expanding that are looking at more restrictive voting Uh, laws as a result of the 2020 election. But Bernard, there's a strange kind of irony to Republicans in the legislature promoting these bills as um, vigorously as they are. And and here's what I mean by that. Um, We know for a fact, or I think we do, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that President Trump's Uh, constant attacks on the illegitimacy of absentee voting in the months before the election uh, led to Republicans not voting in advance. And in fact, they ended up, if they showed up at the polling place on election day, that was the only way they were going to somehow overcome the huge lead Democrats built up through absentee voting. And so we know basically that this hurt Republicans. Now Republicans continue to attack absentee balloting, and I wonder if they don't think perhaps they're, Bernard, creating the same problem in the next election cycle.
3: I I think that's a great point. You know, I've done research with some colleagues here at Emory looking at the effect of the president's claims, baseless claims, regarding fraud in the election in November and regarding fraud in, in Georgia. Uh, calling the the runoff election illegitimate or illegal, even. And what we found is that it depressed Republican turnout. Above and beyond, you know, obviously that has to be the case, given the the election, but above and beyond just being Republican, it was Trump's strongest supporters who stayed home in the runoff election. And indeed, if they would have turned out to vote, Purdue and perhaps Loeffler would have won. So the Republicans are are really in a tough situation right now. They're claiming that they're responding to their constituents, Who are demanding, you know, more secure, as they put it, elections. But they, in some ways, have been creating this demand. They've been creating the specter of voter fraud, have been emphasizing it. They claim that Stacey Abrams was talking about this in 2018. She was talking about expanding access. So I think that they're in a really tough situation where they feel that they need to take action, they need to do something to placate their constituents, but it's really that they're they've created the problem. They've created Even by not more forcefully attacking these claims of fraud, like the secretary of state and the governor have done, uh, state legislators are really in the situation where they might be depressing Republican turnout. And again, any changes to the absentee ballot system, which were heavily favored by Republican, especially older Republican voters prior to 2018, the Republicans created the no excuse absentee ballot system in 2005. They passed it here in the state. You know, again, in future elections where there's not COVID, as we all hope there's no more COVID, you know, in the future in 2022, Republicans might be the ones who are most likely to use absentee voting and then who are hurt the most by those restrictions that Republicans are advocating for right now.
1: Yes, I will um, pick up on what Bernard said. Uh, When you're down at the state legislature, the constant theme from Republicans is that all of this is being done to restore confidence in voting. And um, all of these many changes at the county, at the committee, subcommittee, on the floor, it's to restore confidence in the vote. And truly, the the one thing that would restore uh, Republican voters' confidence um, would just be a single tweet from President Trump to say, it was fine. I was just kidding. <laughs> In anything. It, it needs to be the leaders of the party and former President Trump to say, you should have confidence in this vote. Otherwise, I don't really know what they can show their voters to prove to them that it's all a okay and they can trust it completely. Um, But it is very clear that this is being driven by their constituents and it's being driven by the need to bring something home at the end of the legislative session and before the next election to say, don't worry, we've got it under control. We've made these many changes to the law. Um, The great... uh, It's not even an irony. I was about to say it's an irony. The problem is that the reason Georgia laws look the way they do is because they were probably designed to solve a problem that existed in the first place. And you have to look at no excuse absentee voting. I talked to um, Kathy Cox, who was the secretary of state in 2005, who, when uh, the Republican legislature and Sonny Perdue signed off on this idea of not requiring an excuse um, to vote absentee. She said the reason that she introduced that idea was because county elections officials cannot verify the excuse Mm -hmm. that's being offered. They don't have the resources. They're not forensic specialists. Are they going to go? knock on somebody's door and say, I want to see your plane ticket to prove that you were out of town. You know, So she said she felt like they really were requiring people to lie about absentee voting when all they really wanted to do was just cast a ballot and not go into the polls. And so that's the specific reason why there is not an excuse required in Georgia for absentee voting. If you go back and require an excuse, these county election officials who are already under massive pressure are going to have the same problems.
2: Audrey and then Bernard?
0: Well, um, that is a very good point. And there have been um, a very handful of Republicans. Uh, In the Georgia General Assembly who have been saying exactly that same point uh, in response to what their colleagues are doing in terms of just that area. I was going to say, too, that perhaps some of this is also driven by real concern about mobilization and electoral margins in the upcoming elections. People don't just I mean, they, they may do something symbolic to appease their base and make it seem that they are, you know, supportive of Trump. And obviously there was fraud and, you know, we're, we're not going to stand for that in Georgia. We're going to make our election secure. But um, at the same time, they're, the things that they're doing in a lot of this um, legislation is not necessarily addressing any question of fraud, which there wasn't really much of any anyhow. It's doing things to really change the way elections uh, take place. Um, And and rolling back, ease and accessibility. So I think that has to be driven by reality because these don't seem very symbolic. They seem like they're really pushing for them. You know, I mean, to initially even introduce the notion of doing away with Sunday voting, which is so obvious, which group that targets, right? I mean, that is so blatant. And of course, maybe they've pulled it back with that feedback. But it's pretty clear why they're doing this. I I think they're doing it because they
3: think it will make a difference. Well, I want to speak on this point. I, I think the idea that it'll make a difference is really key here. Uh, you know, I've spent much of my career studying the impact of election laws on voter turnout. And if there was some kind of magic bullet that would increase voter turnout a whole bunch, uh, you know, I'd be advocating for it. You know, outright, no question. But when you look at some of the laws that have been characterized as voter suppression, you know, while the intention might be problematic, and as I mentioned earlier, given that about a third of Americans, even in these historic elections, didn't vote, and a third of Georgians as well, about the same number, you know, we should be doing everything possible to make it easier to vote. The bottom line is that things like voter identification laws and even cuts to early voting don't have a huge impact on voter turnout. People find a way around these restrictions. They do the work. And I think we saw that in November and we saw that in January. Georgia does not have especially permissive laws when it comes to early voting. And we have a strict voter ID law, unlike many other states, one of the strictest in the country. Yet African-American voter turnout is some of the highest of any other state in the country here in Georgia. We saw the power of Black voters at the polls. We know that organizations are going to do the work to make sure that voters are informed. So I'm certainly not advocating for more restrictions, but the bottom line is it doesn't really have a huge impact on voter turnout. Now, one reason for that might be because there's a backlash to these laws. I have a bumper sticker in my office, which I don't go to very often given the pandemic, that says if voting made a difference, it would be illegal. And I think about that a lot. It was a joke from about 10 to 15 years ago talking about how your vote doesn't matter. But now the idea is when people see restrictions on voting, it might actually spur them to turn out even more. I certainly expect that whatever restrictions are put in place, organizations are going to redouble their efforts to make sure that everyone turns out to vote in key constituencies. So I think that here we might see that these laws engender not just, you know, small difference in terms of voter turnout, but might even produce a backlash that just means there'll be even more attention paid to mobilization. And it could hurt Republicans in the end. They have to be very careful here with anything that could be perceived as restricting the vote, because it might just spur voter turnout even more for those attacked groups.
2: Bernard, you just said something I really wanted to pick up on. It's exactly that. If Republicans have decided to back away from eliminating Sunday voting, one of the reasons may be just what you're saying. What would, When you become that obvious in your efforts to stop certain people from voting, it strikes me that gives Democrats an extraordinary tool to use in the next election cycle. It's probably one of the reasons that Stacey Abrams' group, Fair Fight Action, has launched this million-dollar-plus ad campaign uh, uh, opposing a lot of the election reform laws. I mean, yes, they want to stop these laws from uh, uh, being passed, these bills from being passed, but also it does it seems to me, uh, give their voters a uh, reason to really want to get out there and push back.
3: Yeah, if there's anything that demonstrates the importance and the power of the vote, beyond election outcomes, which are also mm-hmm. very important, it's, these efforts to change election laws. It's the fact that people are out there trying to limit the ways you can vote. You know, the government is out there trying to limit the ways you can vote. Why is that? Given that there's sanctioned forms, you know, we had a very successful election here in Georgia in terms of the way it was operated. No fraud. Secretary of State is a Republican. Governor is a Republican. Both said that many, many times. Why make changes to something that's working? You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, certainly. But again, The potential here for this to simply spur even more turnout, certainly fundraising and mobilization action from Democratic-aligned groups, voter mobilization organizations, is very real and something that Republicans in the state legislature should be very careful of when talking about angering a group of potential voters.
1: Well, it strikes me that it's also – I can't really think of a better playing field for Stacey Abrams to walk into if she were to announce a bid for governor. This is her issue. This has been her cause, and it's become her national cause. And um, after the last election, after um, Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger were so resistant to the president's um, efforts to overturn the election. Um, in my mind, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm interested in the argument that Stacey Abrams would make because it does seem like Kemp and Rappensburger have really stood up for Georgia elections and election laws. Um, but after a legislative session like this, um, it is an issue that is so hotly renewed, so put into the forefront, not just in Georgia, but around the country. Um, and it just speaks to the point that Stacey Abrams has been making for years, which is that Georgia Republicans are trying to reduce access to the polls. Um, and uh, one other thing that Bernard said that really struck me, the, you know, there, there are, I think, perceived problems, but the, there, these are real changes that are being, um, that are being discussed and likely to be pushed through. And there's no way to know really who it's going to affect. Um, and it could certainly easily end up affecting uh, Republican voters as well as um, as Democratic voters, particularly older um, Republican voters who we know they rely on.
2: All right. got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, we'll have more. One of the questions I want to ask is, you know, I'm not sure there's enough money in politics uh, these days. I think that the legislature ought to be looking for more ways to expand how much money people can put into campaigns. Let's talk about whether they have any plans for that. This is Political Rewind. As if today's conversation isn't fascinating enough, we have a really interesting show coming up for you on Monday. We're going to be talking to Ty Sigilye, Uh, Ty Sigley is a professor emeritus of history at West Point, a 32-year veteran of the United States Army. He retired as a brigadier general. He grew up in uh, Virginia, but then also in rural Georgia. And he has written a book called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. He talks about the fact that His reverence for the lost cause and all things Southern surrounding the Civil War when he was a boy, uh, he came to realize as he grew into adulthood were completely misplaced and wrong. And he's written this book to talk about the myths that he had to reject. It's a fascinating uh, a book I'm looking forward to Jim Galloway, who's born in the South, and me, a Chicagoan who moved here,'ll we'll talk to Ty about that on Monday. All right. Um, Patricia, we've uh, just got a few minutes, but let's pick up a few other threads. Uh, so we've just gone through the most expensive election cycle in modern in American history, I believe. And now uh, Jeff Mullis is proposing a way, that people can put even more money into election campaigns. Tell us what's going on, please.
1: Yes, there's a bill that's coming up for a vote in the Senate today uh, that would allow um, for... (laughs) leadership committees, this is something that um, happens in Washington quite a bit, uh, but it would bring the concept of leadership committees down here to the state, uh, let the governor, lieutenant governor, major party nominees, and then also the legislative caucuses have a source of unlimited donations for their um, for their election activities. Uh, there are limits right now to um, the, the uh, size of donations that uh, these members and campaigns can take, uh, and this would be a way that they could receive unlimited donations. There are already uh, some ways for particularly the governor and lieutenant governor through dark money groups to get unlimited donations that are not disclosed. These would be disclosed. But again, the idea of unlimited contributions is something that caught our eye also Um, This is a bill that was introduced on Monday, uh, sent straight to the Rules Committee. It didn't have a committee uh, debate this week, which is highly unusual. Um, It popped out of the Rules Committee last night, and now it's on the Senate floor today. And when something moves that quickly um, with so little discussion, you know that there's probably more talking about it to be done.
2: Well, wait. But also that it's moving quickly is what isn't that really the exactly. implication of what you're saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. you know, Aud- Audrey, uh, it reminds me that back when I mentioned Roy Barnes once on the show already, but it reminds <laughs> me back when he was a member of the, a house long before he was governor. Uh, when there was a bill like uh, Patricia's talking about, was, that seemed to be on such a fast track. Barnes kept one of those wooden train whistles uh, in his desk, and when a bill like that was presented, he would go into his desk and kind of hide underneath it and blow the train whistle to signal to everyone, watch out, this bill is coming down the tracks fast and furious. Audrey, is there a point at which the public is ever going to sort of rebel against seeing the vast sums of money in politics and and perhaps reject people who continue to want to raise Such huge sums of money.
0: Well, it's been quite a while since we've had any significant reform of campaign finance, and it's really difficult because it really requires one party to either have such a substantial majority that they can push through something that may not be as popular, and it may also require them to make their own members uh, um, a bit concerned because everyone thinks that money is power these days, and they're really worried about... You know, elections and whether they're – it's a constant cycle. Let me just say it would be very difficult to roll back, and, and unless the public decides to do it in some way, shape, or form, which is difficult these days as well, I don't think it's going to change. I think we're just going to continue to see more money pour in. But the leadership may be trying to do this so that they have more influence. Small money donors right now and independent candidates who go off and you know create a, a following uh, can – do a lot and perhaps not need to stay in line with what the leadership wants. And that may be indicative of what's going on in the state house right now with all of these pieces of legislation, people are trying to please the base and get attention. Um, and the leadership may think they need another tool
3: to kind of keep things in order.
2: Bernard? Yeah.
3: I think when we, when we examined, you know, the, Popularity of different kinds of campaign reforms or election law changes. You know, it's not voter ID laws or cuts to early voting that are most popular among wide swaths of the American electorate. It's limits on campaign fundraising, on spending. Uh, You know, it's limits on the amount of money in politics, right? Americans are very, very upset about how much money there is in politics, yet we don't see a lot of changes. Coming down. And when we do see kind of limits on how much spending or fundraising there can be, you know, the courts have consistently ruled that there should be fewer limits, uh, even fewer limits on how much money can be spent or raised. And I fully expect that, you know, the the public, despite their demands, we're going to continue to see more and more money in politics. But again, it's important to note that just like what I was mentioning with election laws, you know, both sides adapt to the new reality and use it in their favor. Uh, I think that it's very, very smart. Uh, from Aubrey to say that this might be a story about the leadership uh, trying to kind of exercise their power and ensure that small money donors have less influence. And I think that's that's extremely smart and and the the reason why this might be pushed at the moment it is.
1: Um, I also just have to add, this is coming after that runoff cycle where we saw half a billion dollars worth Mm -hmm. of TV ads in a nine-week period. That's above and beyond all of the money that went into those two Senate races um, even before the runoff happened. And to me, as just a regular Georgian, it was punishing. It felt like a daily slog to wake up and be exposed to all of those messages and um, to see an effort in the legislature to expand the way that money can be raised. And then, of course, how it would be spent um, is a little discouraging.
2: Um, yeah, there's an obscenity to it that's just hard to reconcile. I think that's one way of, of putting it, um, no matter what side of the aisle uh, you're on. So we're going to watch I'm, I'm I guess, Patricia, this bill is destined to get through fairly easily uh, the way you described its, uh, it's fast uh, course in the Senate.
1: Yes, and it's also uh, designed to help both Democrats and Republicans. So I would say it's, it's destined for reality. Yes.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Sam, how much time do we have left right about now? Okay, we're down to uh, the last minute of the show. So um, I think we're going to have to thank everybody for being part of the show. Don't have time to take on another subject. Bernard Fraga, uh, Audrey Haynes, Patricia Murphy. I I just, I loved the conversation with the three of you today. Thank you for taking the heavy lifting on talking and letting me rest my voice a little bit. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation enormously. We're back again on Monday when, as I said, we talked to Cy, Ty Sigely, who has changed his thinking about the lost cause of the Confederacy. It's a fascinating a book he's written, and I look forward to that conversation. Thank you to uh, my team, Sam Burma Stawes, Amelia Brock, Jesse Neiswanger, for another good week. Till Monday, take care, stay healthy, wear a couple of masks. Bye-bye, everybody.